From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you would like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I am Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Charles Beery handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube... Or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And if you are watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can clearly see that our sojourner has returned from his gallivanting uh, to Rome and, more dangerously, to the faculty meeting last week at uh, Mount St. Mary's (laughs) Seminary. Uh, Father John Tregilio, how are you? I'm doing well. I wish I was back in Rome instead of the faculty meeting last week. Yeah, well, maybe we wish you were back in Rome. How about that? No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I you did run into Joan Lewis over there, and she says hi. I've got a picture. We were, uh, I was telling you earlier, my daughter and I, it's been, I guess, she's three or four or five years ago now. No, more than that. It had to be, anyway, many years ago now. <laughs> my daughter and I were there for uh, Easter week, or not for Easter week, but for uh, the week leading up to Easter, and inclusive of Easter. And on Holy Thursday, uh, the English-speaking community w- that used to meet in a particular parish that was being renovated was moved to a parish over next to the United States Embassy. And we walk in, and we're going to go to that Holy Thursday liturgy. And as we're making our way to a pew, I feel this tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and there's Joan Lewis. You cannot escape her. <laughs> she's ubiquitous. <laughs> she is. She's everywhere. So you can not only uh, uh, attest to the exist- the continued existence of Joan Lewis, but of Rome as well. Yes. Very Both good. are in good shape. I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, got an email here from Mary, and she says, I have a Protestant friend who said the Levitical priesthood went away with Judaism, and he wants to know why we have priests... In the Catholic Church. Okay, well, that's a good question. And the priests, especially since the time of Christ, are distinct and different from the Levitical priesthood, which were hereditary. Um, in the Old Testament, when uh, Moses um, spoke with God and established the covenant, uh, they st- set up the Levitical priesthood with Aaron and uh, those guys who were, their fathers were priests, like St. John the Baptist, his dad was part of the priestly class. It was all inherited, and it was very symbolic, but uh, as St. Paul points out in his uh, epistle, uh, the priesthood of Jesus Christ is not something hereditary. Obviously, Christ is the 
uh, high priest par excellence, because he's both God and man, but the priesthood that Jesus established is not hereditary. It's sacramental. And so, like, I was, on May 14th, 1988, ordained to the holy priesthood. Uh, had nothing to do with my biological father, but I was ordained by um, a bishop who was ordained by a bishop who could trace their lineage all the way back to one of the Twelve Apostles. So the priesthood in the Catholic Church is distinct and different from the Levitical priesthood. And in the Old Testament, the priests offered sacrifice, New Testament, and today we offer sacrifice, but the sacrifice of the Old Testament was purely symbolic. Sin was not washed away, whereas in the New Testament, the Christian dispensation, Catholic priests who act in the person of Christ, in persona Christi, offer up the Son to the Father on behalf of the people of God. Amanda's watching us on YouTube, and she wants to know if there is a place she can go to learn what the Catholic Church believes. Well, you can go to EWTN, <laughs> which is a good start. And also, uh, Father Briganti and I wrote a book, Catholicism for Dummies, which uh, is, is meant to introduce people to the, the Catholic faith. So I would certainly uh, advocate both uh, to watch uh, EWTN television, listen to EWTN radio, go to the EWTN webpage, uh, read our book. Uh, and that's a good beginning. And then, uh, hopefully, when the more questions you have, you want to then hopefully speak to a priest or deacon uh, of, uh, of a local parish, and they'll help you, hopefully, in that process of the journey of faith. Now, does Catholicism for Dummies, is it indexed? There is an index, yes. By topic? There's, a, there's in the back of the book, we have a full index. The, the whole book itself is based on the format of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the four pillars. So we've got it arranged by, by doctrine which is based on the Apostles' Creed. Then we have the Ten Commandments with the for moral teaching. We have the seven sacraments, the liturgical life of the Church, and then the Our Father or the spiritual um, prayer dimension of the individual. So just as the Catechism is divided up into four pillars, so is, so is our book. And it has an imprimatur, so you know it's kosher. Awesome. Thanks, Amanda. We appreciate the question today. Howard wants to know, how do we defend the, the infallibility of the papacy? Well, we do from Matthew's Gospel. Uh, in, in Matthew uh, chapter 16, it makes it very clear that Jesus gives to Peter the keys of the kingdom. He says to him very explicitly, whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you declare loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. And that phrase is taken very literally by the Catholic Church that the Pope has the, the fullness of teaching authority, which, again, is distinct and different from uh, inspiration. Biblical inspiration means that the sacred authors, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write those things exactly as God wanted them to be written. Infallibility, on the other hand, is more of a negative concept that the Pope, the Pope is prevented from imposing a false teaching uh, universally, which is binding in conscience on all the Catholics. So it's not so much the Holy Spirit is guiding everything he says, but the Holy Spirit protects us from him teaching uh, us a false doctrine. That's with papal infallibility. And uh, there's only two occasions where the Pope has made what we call an extraordinary uh, ex-cathedra from the throne uh, pronouncement, when Pius IX declared the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, when Pius XII declared the dogma of the Assumption of Mary. There's also the ordinary um, 
magisterium, the, the day-to-day consistent teachings of the popes. Uh, for instance, when John Paul II uh, issued Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, that only uh, baptized males can be ordained priests. Or even with Pope Paul VI in Humani Vitae about the intrinsic evil of abortion and artificial contraception. So the Holy Father has no insight into who's going to win the fourth race at Aqueduct. Not a clue, not even the soccer match, which, interestingly enough, when Pope Benedict was alive, Germany played Italy, and so he had torn <laughs> torn loyalty, so to speak, there. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, June would like to know, what is the meaning of charism in reference to religious orders? Okay, the word charism uh, comes from the, the Greek word charis, meaning gift. And when we talk about religious charism, it's sort of the ethos of what the order was based on or what the founder intended. So, for instance, uh, like St. Dominic and the Dominicans, the order preachers, uh, one of their charisms is teaching as well as preaching. They're called the Order of, of Friars Preachers. Um, the, the Franciscans, founded by uh, St. Francis of Assisi, Order of Friar Minor, uh, they work, um, their charism is working with the poor and um, doing um, missionary work. Doesn't mean that the other orders don't do that, but that's their main emphasis. The Vincentians uh, were founded by St. Vincent de Paul uh, to work among the poor and establishment of seminaries. And so each individual founder and their religious community have a particular uh, aspect, dimension, and we call that the charism of their order. Um, the monastic orders like the, the, the um, Benedictines and the Augustinians, uh, their charism is um, obviously a liturgical prayer. doesn't mean that's the only thing that they do, but that's something that is one of their chief uh, projects. Just getting started on a Monday edition of EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio is back in the house, and he's ready to answer your questions. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you'd like to send us an email, we would love to take that from you as well. That uh, email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Invite you to visit EWTN's site dedicated to Mother Angelica, where you can celebrate her remarkable life. It's filled with photos, milestones, heartfelt stories, and her wit and words that have inspired the hearts of all ages throughout the years. Simply visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines at 833 
288-3986. David is a first-time caller in the Commonwealth of Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. David, you're on with Father Tregilio. Hey, Father. So my question is, uh, Adam and Eve walked with God, and they sinned. So when Jesus comes again and, and we enter into heaven, what keeps us from sinning again at that point? Okay, that, that's a very, very good question. When Adam and Eve walked with God, as we are, were told in, in Scripture, they were still not in heaven. They were in the Garden of Paradise, which meant they did not have the beatific vision. They could see God in a sense, but they did not have the fullness of seeing him. Because when you're in heaven, um, both your intellect and will are totally and perfectly and completely satisfied. Your intellect is seeking what is true, and your will is seeking what is good. And when you see God face to face, then you see the fullness of truth and the fullness of goodness. So there's, it's impossible to sin in heaven. That's why even Lucifer and the third of the angels who fell were not in heaven they were on their way, hopefully, but then they, they, then they failed the test in the same way Adam and Eve. So once you're in heaven, there's no way you could possibly sin because it, and it's a poor analogy, but it, it'll, it'll work a little bit here. Uh, if you're completely f full because you had a nice big Italian meal on St. Joseph's Day and there's just no way you get even one more meatball in there, all right, who's going to tempt you with more food, another tray of lasagna, okay? You're full. You just can't put any more in there. Uh, so when you're in heaven, you're completely satisfied uh, in your intellect and will, the fullness of holiness, because you're seeing the one who is holy uh, in itself. So uh, the prior to going to heaven, Adam and Eve uh, fell. They committed the sin we call original sin. And likewise, Lucifer and those angels but those who are in heaven will always be there. There's no way they can get out. Does that help, David? Father. No, that was perfect. Thank you so much. I've never been able to get anybody to answer the question like that, so I appreciate it. Thank you Thanks very for much. Calling. Yeah, we appreciate the call, David. Thank you. 833-288-EWTN. 833 Tom is another first-time caller in the great state of Missouri listening on Covenant Radio. Tom, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Trujillo. Yes, I was watching the World Baseball Classic there Saturday evening, and I noticed that there was a player from Venezuela. He was wearing the rosary as a necklace, and I noticed a few other athletes and different people wearing the rosary as a necklace. And I was just wondering if that was okay by the Catholic faith if people were a rosary as a necklace. Yes, um, we would prefer them to use it as what it's meant to be, a sacramental, which means it's merely something that helps you uh, in, in your prayer life. Um, there's nothing prohibiting or preventing you from wearing it, but the primary purpose is that the person prays the rosary, which is you meditate on the mysteries of, of the life of Jesus. So you've got the, the sorrowful, uh, the glorious the joyful and the luminous. And so the Hail Marys, the Our Fathers, the Glory Bees, uh, help us meditate on those mysteries of, of the life of Christ. So if you're wearing it, but also using it, I see no problem. But if somebody's just wearing it as jewelry, then you're, it's almost the same as if you're wearing a cross. If you're wearing a cross or crucifix to attest to your faith, to remind you of your faith, that's beautiful. 
But if you're merely wearing it as a piece of jewelry, you're defeating the purpose of it. it this, this is so, something that's supposed to be a reminder to you and other people of our faith. And if it's just something that you use to show off that, you know, if it's a butterfly one day, it's a rosary the next, well, then, you know, you're, you're, you're not doing something that's, that's proper. Does that help, Tom? Yeah, thank you very much. So it's on an individual basis, more or less. Is that what you're that's saying? That's right. Yes, that's exactly right. Yep. Thanks, Tom. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. That was a very exciting baseball game, by the way. I <laughs> dipped into the end of that one myself. Um, Thomas is watching on YouTube, and he wants to know, can you please explain who the Antichrist is and why people are so afraid of him? <laughs> Well, I'm glad you didn't ask me who the Antichrist is. Cause I, I was going to no say, I don't, I don't like the way you're looking at me as you're getting ready to answer that question. Yeah, well, I didn't see no three sixes on the back of your head, so don't worry. Um, the Antichrist is mentioned in, in the book of Revelation, or sometimes called the, the Apocalypse. Uh, he's uh, supposed to be the son of perdition, uh, offspring of the devil, whatever. Um, he is His name bespeaks his mission that he's against Christ, so he's the Antichrist. But he's not an equal... Um, counterpart to Christ. That's that's a dualism that, that the church has condemned as a heresy because good is always more powerful than evil. We don't believe in the the, the um, dark side of the force and the light side of the force like you have in Star Wars. Uh, good is always more powerful than evil and evil is really a privation of good as St. Thomas Aquinas tells us uh, in his Summa. So the Antichrist is not the equal um, um, counterpart to, to Christ. The Antichrist is going to appear at the end of the world, uh, will oppose Jesus, and he will be uh, eventually vanquished and cast into hell with his father and everyone else who allied with him. But Hollywood and, and uh, the people of fiction have certainly done their best to make this much more bizarre than, than sacred scripture. Um, in the early church, people you know, thought that Nero was the Antichrist because his name, if you use spelled out his name with Hebrew characters, every letter has a number, and it came out to 666. That is what the scriptures say, that the number of the beast is 666. How is that interpreted? Well, in the movies, they had three little sixes on, on the back of this guy's head. But I thought, well, that's interesting, because that's Hindu-Arabic. Why wouldn't it have been, like, Roman numerals or something else? Um, so don't get so obsessed with these little details which are in uh, the book of Revelation um, you know, Scott Hahn's written a wonderful book on properly interpreting uh, that, that last book of the Bible but definitely there is going to be an Antichrist who it is is not as more important as making sure you oppose him when he does appear 833-288-EWTN that's our toll free number, that's the number Joe used he is in Cincinnati, Ohio listening on Sacred Heart Radio Joe, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Well, good afternoon, Father. Hello. Um, yeah, my uh, question is about the five senses. It's kind of a follow-up to the fellow whose father was concerned about his mother in, in heaven, where they know each other, etc. Yes. And I'm wondering about, the, will we enjoy eating, you know, taste, sight? Uh, either hearing the birds sing or whatever. I mean, will all those be available to us? 
Well, that that that's a good question because it, it then points us to another teaching of the church, the resurrection of the body. Because as Catholic Christians, we believe, and all Christians, in fact, should believe in the resurrection of the dead so that the body is raised up and then transformed, glorified, those who are in heaven, of course, which means you're going to be able to use all five senses. You'll be able to see, touch, taste, smell, and likewise. Now, right now in heaven, uh, the only people with bodies are Jesus and the Blessed Mother. All the other uh, saints in heaven don't have their bodies. Therefore, they don't have the five senses. We believe by, you know, and this is a speculation, um, certainly, that um, God infuses knowledge in them so that they're able to recognize each other because souls don't have bodies, they don't have a face, they don't have a voice. So how are you going to recognize grandma and grandpa? Well, somehow God, we believe God infuses knowledge so that you are, are able to recognize. But the resurrection of the body, when the body and soul are reunited, and St. Thomas even uh, speculates on this, that the beauty of, of heaven with the resurrected body is that you'll be able to eat and, you know, you, you won't uh, worry about carbohydrates or gluten intolerance or indigestion. Um, you know, the, everything's going to smell wonderful. You're going to hear beautiful music and hear birds chirping and everything. So all the five senses will be, will be um, uh, in, in effect, but they will be uh, pleased at all costs. Now, the opposite, those who are, have their bodies reunited and they're in hell, it's the exact opposite. They're gonna, their five senses will be tortured uh, for all eternity. They're going to smell bad odors. They're going to taste horrible things. They're going to hear horrible sounds. Um, you know, the, the sense of touch will be, you know, constant pain. So uh, the pains of hell and the rewards of heaven will be intensified when the body's resurrected. And, you know, St. Thomas being a, um, Italian, it was Tommaso d'Aquino uh, was his uh, full name, um, he was looking forward to as, as much because, you know, we just, I just got back from Italy with the seminarians. He was looking forward to a nice plate of uh, carbonara and not worrying about the carbs. <laughs> Thanks so much, Joe. We appreciate the, the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Have you ever been to Baton Rouge, Father? I have. Have you been to Chimes? No. Yeah, best boot and balls on the face of planet Earth. Patrick is in Baton Rouge. He is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Patrick, you're on with Father John. Hello, Father John. Hi. Before the new catechism came out, one of the precepts of the Catholic Church was to obey the laws of the Church concerning marriage. When the new catechism came out, they left that off completely. And I was just wondering, with the problems we have with married couples and you know people staying married and the commitment, why did the Church drop that as one of the one of the precepts of the Church? Okay, well that that that, that that's a good question. It did it they it was not dropped. It just it wasn't formulated in the same way, because uh, the way that the Catechism describes uh, the obligations of of being a Catholic, it's not like we learned it with the Baltimore Catechism. These are the six precepts of the Church, and then it was just re reiterated or restated. Because right after the Second Vatican Council, the Bishop of the United States had actually added a seventh one, support the missionary activity of the Church. And then when the, the, the catechism that we, we now know today came out in 1992, uh, it does talk about um, precepts of the church, but they're not delineated the same way. And yet the Catholics are still obligated to follow the marriage law. So we might not or uh, talk about it as one of the six precepts 
uh, at least from the catechism standpoint, but it's still part of being a Catholic, that we follow the church's uh, marriage laws, because if you're not married validly in the church, you're not, you can't receive the, the sacraments. You can't go to communion, you can't go to confession, uh, you know, um, the other sacraments. So it's in there, it's just not in there the same way. God bless you, Patrick. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. You know, our great EWTN radio partner, Sacred Heart Radio, with three signals in the greater Cincinnati area and the home of the Sunrise Morning Show, is airing their spring pledge drive starting tomorrow. So all of you listening in the greater Cincinnati area, uh, or if you have ties to Cincinnati, their their spring, spring pledge drive starts tomorrow. Their theme is preserving persevering rather in providing the gospel persevering in providing the gospel no matter where you're listening please support your local catholic radio station 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number next stop is aberdeen not scotland but south dakota garrett is in aberdeen listening on real presence radio garrett you're on with father john tregilio hi father john i know this question is probably a a couple days late, but uh, I know last year and with St. Patty's Day on Friday during Lent, can we eat meat on these holidays? <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm glad you asked that. Um, well, let's start with the easy one. On St. Joseph, uh, Feast of St. Joseph, um, which is March 19th, um, whenever it falls on a Friday in Lent, as well as on March 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation, these are called solemnities in the Church, so it's automatic. Everyone's dispensed from uh, fast and abstinence on, on those days. Other um, holy days or feast days, like uh, St. Patrick's Day, the individual bishop uh, can dispense all the people of his diocese, um, or it's automatic, like in the case of my diocese, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, because St. Patrick is the patron saint of the diocese. So that's considered a full-blown solemnity in our diocese. So um, it we don't need the bishop to, to grant that, but uh, he reiterates it anyway for those people who, who don't believe it. <laughs> um, a lot of bishops in the United States uh, did grant, some did not. Uh, that's their call to make. They do certainly have the authority to do that. Uh, I, as a pastor, could not dispense my parishioners uh, if it was, say, um, uh, if I was in a different context, it wasn't outside of Harrisburg or whatever. So solemnities, which are full-blown Liturgical feasts in the church, uh, canon law makes it very clear that they automatically uh, are dis- people are dispensed. The other ones depend on uh, the, the saint's day, uh, the context of that particular diocese, and the bishop himself could just for whatever reason he wants dispense the people, but only of his diocese. The pope obviously could dis- could dispense the whole universal church. That's never really happened, um, but um, you know the, the interesting thing is. Though, though, even those places that don't have St. Patrick as, a, as their patron saint, most of the bishops said that if you are going to uh, not, if you are going to eat meat, you should do some other form of penance, which we should be doing on Fridays outside of Lent, because.
because all Fridays should be penitential, uh, even outside of Lent, so that you and I should be willingly doing something else if we're going if we're not going to abstain from meat on those Fridays. We should do something, a work of mercy uh, or some other uh, minor form of penance. Does that help, Garrett? Yeah, sure. I like your show, Larry. A lot of information. Well, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Patsy is in Jackson, Georgia, listening on The Quest out of Atlanta. Patsy, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hello to both of you. Um, I have a twofold question going back to the beatific vision that you were just speaking of. Um, in heaven, you said um, the angels didn't have the full beatific vision when they when they had that battle between Lucifer and uh, Michael and the other angels that chose to follow Lucifer with and Mother Angelica said that uh, Lucifer's name means I will not serve, and Michael's, um, who is like God. And I was just wondering, could you please tell me where we get that information and uh, more specifics about that battle? Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, Lucifer, the name Lucifer means light bearer. He then becomes the devil, uh, Satan, uh, when he's when he is then cast into hell. God creates hell for the fallen angels, but as I mentioned before, uh, the, the angels who fell were not in heaven. Neither was Michael and the two-thirds who did not go bad. They, they went to heaven after the battle. Now, uh, we, we hear about the, the battle, especially uh, in the New Testament. Uh, there's a reference, uh, obviously, in the book of Revelation, but in other parts, you know, there's references to the great battle that was waged. Um, even the in the Old Testament, um, even in non-canonical, um, non-inspired texts, we have references to this um, cosmic battle between good and evil, between uh, good angels and bad angels. So this has been a constant teaching in the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. It's not something that uh, was concocted or made up, certainly not in the Middle Ages and not just among Christians, but that's where it really became more more prominent. Um, the idea of the battle, again, we won't want to make it sound as if, because sometimes Hollywood portrays this, you know, there's some bizarre movies that came out recently where Michael and Gabriel came back to Earth and decided to go bad, or they were bored with heaven, or there was a, a show on, on Netflix about the devil, you know, sort of being like on vacation or, he, you know, he's semi-retired or something like that. Um, people buy into this this nonsense. I mean, the devil is evil, but he is not the exact antithesis of God, because God is always more powerful than the devil. God is all good. The devil is as bad as you can get, but he's not pure evil. There's no such thing as pure evil. There's pure good, and then there's degrees of it going down all the way uh, to, to Lucifer himself. So in the scriptures, we have a lot of um, material there, but it's um, in terms of what is defined dogmatically, um, we believe that there are angels, there's fallen angels, there's a hell, there's a heaven, there's a purgatory, but a lot of the stuff that most people would know uh, is more based on private revelation or on um, you know contemplation that's based on revealed truths. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. 
Karen is listening on the great Living Bread Radio out of Canton, Ohio, and she is calling from a place that if she were in Massachusetts, it would be called Worcester. Now, I'm not sure how it's pronounced in Ohio. Karen, help me out. It's pronounced the very same way, and it's W-O-O-S-T-E-R. Very good. So I got it right in spite of myself. (laughs) You did. All right. Hi, Karen. You're on with Father John. Hi. Hi, Father. Okay, uh, I'm going to read you one verse from a song that we sing at our Mass. It's very beautiful. Um, I heard it referred to once um, by a theologian that kind of, uh, his take on this one verse wasn't what I thought it was. So here goes. The title of the song is In Christ Alone, and it's the second verse. In Christ Alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, here's the part, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin was on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. Now, the the part that, um, well, it was um, one of your um, theologians on um, on the network, on EWTN, I, he, he wasn't comfortable with um, the wrath of God was satisfied. So my question is, is this, as this verse reads, is this how we are to perceive um, God the Father in this regard to the death of Jesus? Okay, um, that, that's a, a good question. And first of all, you know what is sung in a in a song or in a read in a poem or in any type of literature that's not considered dogmatic uh, statements. We always have to look with a grain of salt because this is not meant to be, nor can it be, an article of faith. That being said, um, I'm always careful about using terms like the wrath of God because we certainly believe in the wrath of God. This is uh, divine justice uh, when God punishes uh, evil. Now, there is a Catholic idea of atonement where you know Jesus uh, pays the, the, the price, the ransom for us, but it's not this idea of a bloodthirsty God the Father who demands payment, okay? There is an idea of both divine justice and divine mercy. And divine mercy is that God the Father allows his Son to die for us. Uh, Divine justice is that there has to be some way of reconciling the fact that humanity sinned. And so we have a God-man who's fully God, fully man, true God, true man. Jesus has a full human nature, full divine nature, hypostatically united to one divine person. Uh, he's the only one, the one mediator who can bridge both worlds, so to speak, heaven and earth, by him offering up himself as the Son to the Father. So if it's understood in the proper context, there's no problem. The problem is that when you say to most people, the wrath of God is satisfied, then they think of some bloodthirsty God, or they think of like Zeus or Jupiter from the Greek and Roman mythology who needs to be appeased. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are not appeased. Divine justice 
is satisfied in that the disobedience of Adam and Eve is repaired by the obedience of Mary and, of course, of mostly Jesus, her, the Son. Both of them say yes to the will of the Father. Adam and Eve said no. So if it's understood in that context, uh, it's just like with um, the song Amazing Grace. There's a line in there that saved a wretch like me. Well, one of the problems is that uh, Martin Luther did believe that human nature became wretched. Uh, it became totally corrupt, and grace just covered it over like, like snow would cover up something that uh, Snoopy left behind. Uh, Council of Trent said, no, we were not totally destroyed. We were seriously mortally wounded, but what's wounded can be healed. So when you explain things in their proper context, then you can use some of these lines in, in, in a song. But if you don't watch that carefully, someone could get the wrong idea. Uh, next up is Francis in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Francis, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, um, hi, Father. Um, so, if like the uh, demons and like devils are stuck in hell, uh, then how do they like mess with humans on Earth? And like, if they can get out of hell, then why? What's stopping like? all these normal people, humans in hell, from getting out as well. Okay. Well, first of all, um, the demons who are in hell don't have bodies, so they're not confined to uh, space like you and I are. Okay, We take up space. We have matter. Uh, we have materiality. We're body and soul. Uh, the soul is in immaterial, but the body is material. So you and I are stuck in longitude, latitude, you know, the four dimensions, you know, uh, as Einstein and all, all of them talk about. Uh, demons and, and the, the damned in hell, um, you know, are not confined in the same way. Um, God allows them access, but they cannot touch anyone's free will. But they can do things. Obviously, we have people who are possessed, have a demon within them. They have people who are obsessed or oppressed where the demon's outside of them. And certainly people can have some physical harm done to them. We just read in the Gospels, you know, where there was a number of, of demoniacs who were plagued by, by demons and tortured and, and whatnot. But basically the demons and the, the, the damned, all right, they're in hell, but hell isn't limited to just a particular geographical place. It is a place because the, the resurrected body for the damned will take up space, so to speak, um, but it's not a place you can find by merely digging. It's not uh, another dimension. It's nor any more than if heaven, if you were in the Starship Enterprise, if you went far enough, you'd find it. You can't because it transcends time and space. So those who are in hell have access to things and people here on Earth, but not in the same way that you and I do. Thanks, Francis. We appreciate the call today. Uh, please join us tomorrow for More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow they ask the question, you're getting on my nerves. Is someone getting on your last nerve? They will help you learn how to cope with that situation. That's More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. I'm going to listen. <laughs> All right, I get it. Um, <laughs> Marie is in Burbank, California. She's watching us on YouTube today. Marie, you are on with Father Tregilio. Hi, Father. 
Hi. Hi. Um, I just have a follow-up question to uh, from an earlier call regarding the resurrected body. Um, a question is: Is cremation accepted in the Catholic faith? And if so, how how does that work with the resurrected body later on? Okay. Um, the Church now allows cremation under the provision that the person being cremated or the family having the, the deceased cremated is not denying the resurrection of the body. And so to ensure that, although we allow cremation, the Church forbids and condemns the practice that some people do of scattering the ashes in the air, of uh, scattering them in, uh, in the water, of putting them in little ampules and wearing them around your neck or into jewelry, or keep them on the mantle of your fireplace or uh, in a shoebox in your closet. The, the cremains, the ashes, need to be buried intact, either at sea or in the ground, but in a container. Um, certainly one of the reasons why we sort of downplayed and even condemned at one point cremation, because the pagan Romans... Basically, they burned their dead, and then the ashes went all over the place. They had no res- showed no uh, conscious respect for the fact or in any belief in the resurrection. Now, Catholics typically we encourage them not to be cremated, so that the family has an opportunity to uh, see the dead, um, show respect to the body by giving a Catholic burial. But we know some people, for financial reasons or for health reasons, in some places. You know, especially during times of plague, uh, they had no option but to have bury or uh, burn bodies uh, because of the possibility of people getting horrible diseases from whatever contracted by the by the dead. Um, but cremation is allowed as long as the cremains are buried intact. Um, you know, I used to say to some people, personally, I would opt for not being cremated because. Uh, more effort's going to be <laughs> be used for God to put you back together. So I, I don't want I don't want to be the last one put back together. Uh, it's a little tongue in cheek, I, I I admit. But you can be cremated. Um, but we often say you can be cremated after the mass of Christian burial. You can have a funeral mass with the body, and then uh, be cremated. Uh, you know, and the, it's the the cost now of cremation. If if you look at it, it's not what the way it used to be, where it's so uh, less expensive because obviously you know people need to make money they need that's their livelihood uh, they're going to charge for other things uh, containers and I was at a funeral where they had cremains they were in a glass container that looked like a coffin they spent the same amount of money as they would have if they kept the body intact does that help Marie yeah so how does the um, well the resurrected body afterwards they're cremated well, it's the same, because if you're buried intact in your body, you turn to dust anyway. If you've been dead over a couple hundred years or longer, your flesh just disintegrates unless you're one of the saints who have the gift of incorruptibility. So even though you're, you are embalmed, um, you know, you turn to dust. That's why at Ash Wednesday he said, remember, man, you are dust, unto dust you shall return. So eventually you become, you know, even, even your bones, the skeleton at some point uh, dissolves. So you get somebody who's been dead for thousands of years, there's nothing there in their in their casket except dust or, or the dirt of the earth. 
God bless you, Marie. Thanks so much for the phone call. We head next to the Republic of Texas. Jennifer's a first-time caller in Louisville, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Jennifer, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, Father. Hi. Um, I had a question. Hi. I had a question about fasting during Lent. Um, so in our family, um, I was told that, like, if you're having a birthday, that that was considered a feast day, and you weren't required to fast. I don't know if that's true or not. Um then uh, my son happens to have, he's turning 13 on Good Friday, and I have half of the family that is willing to participate and half the family that does not want to. Um, he's a little bit confused because everybody's sharing their opinions with him, um, and I just kind of <laughs> want to know what's the right thing to tell him. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, the laws of fast and abstinence are very clear that uh, abstaining from meat, okay, everyone 14 and above is obligated to abstain from meat on Fridays in Lent, especially Good Friday as well as Ash Wednesday. So anyone under 14 is exempt. Fasting is one full meal with two small ones. If you add it together, would not equal the one full meal and no snacks. Fasting is from pe- for people from the age of 18 and 59 inclusive. So again, if you're having a, a party for a 13-year-old, they don't have to fast, they don't have to abstain. The adults would, depending, especially now on Good Friday. Now, um, uh, your 13th birthday, you know, uh, they may be able, you know, if you moved it to the, the day before uh, or the day after, but I would say you're not bound to, you know, because it's Good Friday, not have the kid's birthday party. I would just say, you know, if it was an older kid, especially, you know, a full-blown teenager, 14, 16, 18, yeah, say to him, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate it another day and really whoop it up. Like, during, like Easter week, when you can really have a big blast. But when they're younger, especially under the age of 13, I see nothing wrong with having a little something for them. It's the adults who need to follow the laws of the church because that's who they're explicitly mentioned in, in the Code of Canon Law. Father John Tregilio, party pooper extraordinaire. <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. We appreciate the call. We'll keep your family and your son in our prayers. Mary is a first-time caller in the great state of Connecticut, listening at EWTN.com. Mary, you are on with Father Trujillo. Thank you for taking my call. So this has to do with St. Patrick. Um, St. Patrick. Yes, my bishop had given the dispensation this past Friday. I know St. Patrick appears every year on my Catholic calendar, which always sits on the side of my refrigerator. Their parish is named after him. But from various, from various sources that I've read, um, my understanding is that he was never canonized. So can you enlighten me? Can you help me understand why do we celebrate St. Patrick's if he was never canonized, and how did that come to be? Poppycock. <laughs> okay, well, a saint is not someone who is exclusively canonized because we have a lot of saints who are never canonized. Canonization is an official process by which the church affirms through an investigation, particularly that there were miracles performed after they died. And so right now, as of today, the the current law is that you need one miracle after death to be beatified. You need a second one to be canonized. It was a lot more strict in the ancient church, but even before that, we have saints who were recognized, affirmed, as saints who did not go through the canonization process. So someone like St. Patrick, uh, obviously even like the, uh, the apostles, um, you know, they, did not, they were not canonized. They did not go through a process. 
the church recognizes them as saints. So one of the, the things when people talk about St. Christopher, well, he was taken off the calendar, but he wasn't kicked out of heaven. You know, we still believe he existed. We just don't have corroborative evidence that he exists or lived at a particular time and place as we thought he did, but we still believe he's real. Uh, so he, he's not no longer um, worthy of, of, of intercessory prayers. So yes, St. Patrick, we, we believe he's, full, he's, he's in heaven, he's a saint. It's just that he didn't go through the same process that we did for St. Elizabeth Ann Seton or, uh, or some of the more modern saints. Does that help? Yes, it does. I will say that when it comes to St. Christopher, although this is tongue-in-cheek, that years ago what went around was that he was demoted because he drove a car. <laughs> a chariot, maybe. <laughs> God bless you, Mary. We appreciate the phone call today. Um, a couple minutes left here, Father. Charles is watching us on YouTube. Or, excuse me, BP is watching us on YouTube. And he says, does a person who has dealt with the occult, tarot cards, palm reading, theosophy, etc., open himself up to the demonic? And if so, what can he do to become free of the demonic influence? Oh, yes, you do. It's like, if, it's like texting the evil one and, you know, or sending him a tweet. Not a good thing. So I would definitely um, stop doing it and then speak to a, a Catholic priest, maybe some from the diocese, because you may need some prayers even though nothing supernatural may be happening, you've already opened the door, so to speak. It'd be like if you're on the Internet and you let all your passwords out, okay? <laughs> you're inviting bad things. So stop doing any of those things of the occult, tarot cards, Ouija boards, fortune-telling, the whole nine yards. But also speak to a priest. Every diocese has an exorcist. Uh, I would certainly consult with the diocese because you may need some prayers of deliverance. I think confession would probably be a good first start, right? That'd be the first thing i do, and then sprinkle holy water all over the place. <laughs> God bless you. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Charles Beery. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for kicking off another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship. Father Mitch is in on Wednesday. Thursday, Father Brian Malady, And our Friday guest host will be Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless. <laughs>